Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we are a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down The Last Generation, the series finale of Star Trek Picard. We'll conclude our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. Before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for The Last Generation. Sure. The situation appears dire for United Earth and, by extension, the Federation, as well as the Borg-assimilated young officers have commandeered all Starfleet ships with the exception of the Titan. The ship's target United Earth's space dock and the last remaining defense of the planet. Anton Chekhov, president of the United Federation of Planets, sends out a warning for others to stay away from the area. On the Titan, Seven, Rafi, and a few other surviving officers over the age of 25 manage to get to the bridge and transport their Borg-infected attackers to the locked transporter room. Then the bridge crew initiates the ship's cloaking device to conceal themselves from the rest of the fleet. On the Enterprise D, the former Enterprise crewmates realize they represent the Federation's only hope for putting an end to the maniacal Borg plot. With Admiral Picard in command, they travel to Jupiter, where they find the Borg cube hiding in within the gaseous cloud. They tap into the signal being transmitted to the fleet and hear Jack's voice directing the young Borg-infected officers to kill all unassimilated crew members. Beverly is able to pinpoint the chamber where Jack is being held. Picard decides he must go to stop Jack from carrying out the Borg plan. Riker and Worf also take on the mission to find and destroy the beacon transmitting instructions from Jack. All know they are likely on a suicide mission. Before leaving, Picard gives Geordi the calm. Inside the Borg cube, the trio soon realize there are few drones left. Those remaining appear to have been cannibalized for some unknown purpose. Worf and Riker continue their journey to find the beacon. Picard enters a chamber where he finds a deteriorated Borg queen kept alive by usurping the life force from her drones. He also finds Jack dressed in black leather similar to the outfit worn by Picard when he was assimilated and known as Locutus of Borg. Picard attempts to convince Jack to stop being a tool of the queen but he's in a euphoric state, deep under the influence of the collective. The Admiral sees that a number of conduits are attached to Jack's back. He starts to disconnect them, but the Queen warns him that if he does, the shock will be too much for Jack. The only way for Jack to break from the Borg is to be willing and want to do so. Worf and Riker find the beacon and battle a few Borg drones who were there to defend it just in case someone would stop by. (laughs) (laughs) 
They realized the Enterprises needed since they cannot destroy the beacon with their phasers. Data pilots the ship inside the cube. He maneuvers the Enterprise through the cube to the beacon. On the Titan, Seven and Rafi realize the Enterprise D is back in business under the command of Picard and his team. They decide to serve as a distraction for the Borg forces to give the Enterprise more time. They uncloak and target Starfleet ships. After making a run, they attempt to cloak themselves again, but the Titans' Borg-infected crew have freed themselves from the transporter room and disabled the cloaking device. They are making their way toward the bridge. United Earth's space station is finally destroyed. Starfleet ships now lock target on the major cities of Earth. Worf and Riker are advised they will be transported back to the Enterprise since the ship will only have one minute to escape once the beacon is destroyed. The resulting explosion will take out the rest of the cube as well. However, Riker and Worf refuse to, re to return without Picard. In the Queen's Chamber, Picard makes a desperate move to attempt to communicate more effectively with his son. He disengages one of Jack's conduits and attaches it to his neck. On another plane of existence, Picard convinces Jack that he is loved and, and an important part of their family. His son is moved by the show of affection and breaks his connection with the board. Now in the Queen's Chamber, Worf and Riker prepare to die. Riker voices his love for Deanna and that one day she will be reunited with him and their son again. The power of their love gives the empath enough information so she can pilot the ship above the Queen's Chamber and transport Jack, Picard, Worf, and Riker onto the Enterprise just in time to escape the exploding cube. Simultaneously, the Borg-infected Starfleet officers turned back to normal. A year later, all seems well. Beverly has been promoted to the rank of Admiral and heads Starfleet Medical. Using the transporters, she has invented a way to remove all traces of the Borg DNA from the infected officers, as well as detect changelings who had infiltrated their ranks. The changelings had left alive many of the Starfleet personnel they mm. had impersonated. Mm. Although expecting to resign her commission, Seven is surprised to learn from Admiral Tuvok that Shaw had recommended her promotion to captain. Tuvok refuses to accept her resignation and instead promotes her to the captaincy. Data daily engages in therapy sessions with Deanna. Worf has leaked information of Rafri's role in saving the Federation from doom, and this leads to an invitation from her estranged son to meet her granddaughter for the first time. That's all it takes. You just got to save the galaxy and your son will then allow you to see the granddaughter. That seems like a fair exchange. <laughs> okay. Jordy prepares to return to his position at Starfleet Museum where the Enterprise D has an honored space. In honor of Picard, the Titan is rechristened 
the Enterprise G. Jack completed a one-year accelerated Starfleet Academy training course. As an ensign, he is assigned to the Enterprise G with Seven as captain, Rafi as first officer, and Sidney as helmsman, among other familiar faces. Seven told him he would serve as special counselor to the captain. Because of all that special counseling he did during the season. (laughs) At the episode's end, the TNG cast meet for drinks at the Ten Forward Bar in Los Angeles. I told you we was going to see that set again. Did I tell you that? (laughs) There they make toast to each other's happiness and then settle in for a game of poker. And then surprise, there is a post-credit scene that takes place on the Enterprise in Jack's quarters as he unpacks his bag. He gets a surprise visit from Q. Who? (laughs) Who Picard had told him about. Q gives Jack a cryptic message telling him his trials have yet begun. Mm. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> mm. You could just see them checking off the check the list of things that they had to accomplish before they got to the end of that episode. That's right. Okay, let's move on to the credits. The Last Generation was written and directed by showrunner Terry Metalis. All right, so for the analysis, with the odds squarely set against them, the reassembled crew of the Enterprise-D takes on the board queen in an effort to save Jack while Rafi and Seven lead the remainder of the Titan crew against an assimilated Starfleet. Once again, the outcome will decide the fate of the galaxy. Yep, that's the way it goes. The theme of this episode is family. Family is presented as the thing Picard has been longing for throughout this entire series. It is the deeper bond developed between longtime friends that bring this crew together one more time. It is the connection that Jack has been seeking his entire life. A distorted version of family is what the Borg Queen uses to manipulate Jack so he can help her form a new collective. But in the end, it is Picard's willingness to sacrifice for his son and Will Worf Beverly, Deanna, Jordi, and Data's willingness to place themselves in danger for their family, biological and otherwise, that is their only option. John Luke must return to the Borg, a thing he has dreaded ever happening again, to break Jack's connection with the Borg Queen. So here's our first impression. The last generation delivered what some fans had been asking for since the failure of the Next Generation film, Star Trek Nemesis. A satisfying ending for the crew of the Enterprise NCC-1701D. This story was designed to erase the bad memories of all of that. Now, for many of you, this final season of Picard achieved that, I'm sure. After two dreadful seasons of television, the show itself, however, was assimilated. The series killed off, abandoned, or forgot about many of the original characters introduced in season one and morphed 
into season eight of The Next Generation. But we can't act as if we found this to be a completely entertaining ride. So here's our deeper dive into the episode. We will say the first five episodes were more compelling than the latter half. The Riker and Picard buddy picture at the beginning gave Jonathan Frakes some of the best acting opportunities he has ever had. The bond developed between Rafi and Worf helped to redeem her character from someone who had been uh, had nothing to do but feel sorrowful and dependent for much of the previous two seasons. Rafi became a far more interesting person to watch. Shaw's disdain for Picard and Riker's career achievements provided a critical look at the real cost of some of their exploits. Also, the, the Next Generation cast members had several hard conversations with Picard that would have never been allowed on the, on the, the series. We got much-needed confrontations between Picard and Riker, uh, one with Beverly, but especially a very impactful one with Rolaren. These scenes allowed them opportunities to display their talents while giving us a satisfying resolution to subplots that are decades old. Some of the Next Generation actors continued to find moments to shine in later episodes, such as Riker and Deanna's prison scene, or the silent glance between Beverly and Jordy when they realized the cost of saving Jordy's daughters might come by the death of Beverly's son. But much of the best work in this season was on display in those first five episodes. Yeah, to be honest, I enjoyed watching the season for a longer period than Gary. I finally, though, felt less engaged with the season beginning uh, with episode nine, when the Borg was revealed as the main villain. And I began losing interest starting with episode six, when we had the heist of the 100-year-old Klingon cloaking device that shouldn't have been on the ship anyway. Then we had to endure a useless cameo by Daniel Davies' holographic villain, Professor Moriarty. We had to watch his shaky hands attempt to hold a prop gun steady so that it would, his, wouldn't fall out of the frame of the camera. After that, it was the Jekyll and Hyde routine going on inside of Data. Alton soon left a message stating he had incorporated himself, Data, Lore, B4, and Lal, Data's daughter, inside his, this final golem without explaining what benefit would be rendered by including Lore at all? Other than to foil Picard's plot to capture Vatic aboard the Titan, what purpose did he actually serve? When we left Rafi and Seven at the end of Vox, which was episode nine, they were pinned down on the maintenance level of the Titan with a dead Shaw. Yet, at the beginning of the Last Generation episode, they had somehow escaped found other unassimilated crewmen, and w were attempting to take back the bridge. How did they escape? How did they find the other crewmen? How did they create a modified phaser rifle that could transport whoever is shot by it? In this episode specifically, we have a huge problem with the main antagonist, the Borg Queen. 
But first off, she doesn't have enough time to actually become um, a massive problem. No. But but she was last seen in the series finale of Voyager, where a future version of Janeway infected her with a neurolytic pathogen, an artificial virus, which interferes with the cognitive functions by including cellular neurons to self-destruct. It was designed to destroy her and the Borg that she controlled. Somehow she survived by feeding off of the Borg drones still under her control. Now that's that happened like some 23 years ago. Wow. But she's still feeding off of them. This prompts two questions never answered in the show. How was this Borg queen capable of communicating long distances to both Vatic and to Jack? In such a weakened state. And more specifically, how was she able to physically intimidate Vatic? And we saw that happen. They had a conversation with the hand, and next thing you know, Vatic was worried about her well being, and she was barking orders to her crew member. She was. She killed. She had one of them killed. Killed, yeah. I mean that. It, yeah. Her anxiety level increased after that conversation. How did this weak and feeble creature? Why was she able to do all of that when she was so vulnerable as as, as she was when we saw her on the cube? Also, if Frontier Day was such an important event. Wouldn't you have representatives from every Federation planet in orbit around Earth? That would mean there should have been a number of ships, perhaps hundreds, that hadn't been infected by the Borg, given, which would have gave the Titan much-needed allies in their battle with Starfleet. Obviously, this was not done to service the plot, since the Titan couldn't be seen as the second hero ship after the Enterprise D. Yeah, without without that, without being the only one shooting. Right. They they wouldn't have been seen as the, the hero ship. So why does the Starfleet Collective target lock on all these major Earth cities, but doesn't begin to shoot? Good question. Why did Vatic have her forces capture but not kill the Starfleet personnel that they ended up replacing. I mean, I'm for, I'm glad Tuvok survived. It was nice to see him. Um, but could she have spared any of her forces to actually serve as guards to maintain those people? I mean, it seems like when you start thinking about all the things that were going on at the same time, right. the, the, the changelings are kind of, they're spread very thin. Right, right, right. And a lot of them got killed on the Titan. So yeah. what's up with that? Yeah, did, did did they have the time to set up a detention camp? <laughs> right. Did wherever they, that was. Right. Did they have time for a concentration camp to be set up for these people? Right. All of these questions point to incomplete plotting that is structured more like a checklist of events that had to be accomplished before we're done rather than events that naturally come out of what precedes it. It was these and other accumulated examples of sloppiness throughout the series that became too much to ignore. We had a cloak shuttle used to get Rafi and Worf aboard the Shrike, but it was never explained as to where it came from or where it went. 
when Picard and the others were escaping from the Titan, it could have come in handy. Could have come in real handy. <laughs> we had Beverly say the Borg hadn't been seen in a decade when we as audience members had experienced two previous seasons of Borg-related storylines. Even Shaw had acknowledged Girardi's Borg Collective was something that happened in recent memory. But on top of that, this story has given us a second Picard who is responsible for the death of thousands, if not millions of people. Just like his father, he gets off without any penalty. Now, the difference here is that when Jean-Luc was kidnapped and assimilated into the collective before he became a lieutenant, it was against his will. Right. Jack willingly sought out the Borg Queen. He succumbed to the seductions of the collective. And then Jack was unwilling to sever the connection initially because he finally felt that he was he was bonded with something that mattered. Now this paints his actions as a more deliberate set of sort of activities than his father's. But that's okay. You know, let's accelerate him through Starfleet Academy. Let's assign him to the Enterprise G. In fact, let's give him a special designation. What what harm could that bring? Uh, okay. So much of this can be laid at the feet of the writer and director of this episode and the showrunner of the series. All three are the same person, Terry Metalis. Many of you may see him as the guy who saved Picard, but if he gets another series, specifically this legacy show, these flaws will become more apparent. Without the veil of nostalgia coloring everything, the quality of the writing will be much clearer. So here's our final thoughts. We understand the pull of nostalgia. The Next Generation cast our characters many of us have been following since they were first introduced in 1987. We've been invested in the outcome of their adventures for decades, so it's understandable why people have found some satisfaction in this season's story. When we say we are longtime fans, we mean it. I mean, personally, I watched Star Trek during its original broadcast on NBC. And I began watching it in the early 70s when the show was in syndication. Back then, you watched and rewatched all of the episodes, everything from Balance of Terror to Requiem for Methuselah. Good, better, and different. You were watching Star Trek if you were a fan of Star Trek. In 1979, when Star Trek The Motion Picture hit the movie theaters, fans like us were excited because it reunited the entire original cast. It wasn't just another television show. It was a motion picture, which meant the budget was much larger, so the production values could be higher, especially the special effects. Yet after sitting through two hours and 23 minutes of a longer more boring retelling of the Changeling episode from the original series, fans had a spectrum of different reactions. For me, it was one of the biggest entertainment disappointments of my life. And for me, I spent two weeks after seeing that movie trying to convince myself that it was actually good. I wanted it to be good so badly because these characters were so important to me. Over the next few years, time will tell 
uh, about the quality of the Picard season three. In contrast to seasons one and two, it looks pretty good. But looking at it independently from any comparison, we believe all of its massive flaws will become apparent. That may not be the case for everyone, but it might be true for others. I just know that we're not going to be looking at this series ever again. Right, right. I mean, ever. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's move on to bits and pieces. And this is the Next Generation Edition. If you look at the way Last Generation was shot with the introduction of a new crew on a new Enterprise and a post-credit sequence with Q visiting the young Jack Crusher, you might agree with us that Star Trek Legacy appears to have been a done deal already. It it looks like it's been set since before this final season of Picard even premiered. So here's our theory. Alice Kurtzman always says his company, Secret Hideout, has the production capacity to manage five Star Trek shows simultaneously. At the beginning of the year, we knew Picard had completed post-production on its last season. All that was left was streaming those episodes. Technically, that meant there would be room in the production schedule for a new fifth show. With the cancellation of Discovery, there's now room for another series. The way things have been pre-scheduled, Starfleet Academy had probably already been approved by the end of 2022. When they announced the show, the press release said that they had a showrunner and a writing staff that was already working. The only way that would have happened is if they had had approval prior to the beginning of January. Then on March 2nd, Paramount Plus announced the cancellation of Discovery after the airing of its fifth and final season, which was pushed to early 2024. Secret Hideout offered the producers of Discovery additional time and resources to reshoot elements of season five so the show would have a proper ending. So... With both Picard and Discovery no longer in production after 2023, that opens up Secret Hideout to add two new shows to the stable of their Trek offerings. So do we think Discovery was canceled to make room for Star Trek Legacy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we we do. do. Yeah, Yeah. we do, definitely. It's intriguing that they kill off a Star Trek show with a black female captain to give us a star trek show with a white female captain so they seem at least on gender there there's parody right okay now, let's go on to star trek news the ready and let's talk about the ready room there was a lot of interesting information in the ready room this week mm. yeah the latest installment of ready room began with a segment talking to various members of the Picard cast and production team looking back on what went into making the episode, The Last Generation. The interview segment featured Terry Metalis and Jerry Ryan. Oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Discussing the shooting of the series finale in more personal terms. They discussed the experience of shooting a farewell to the Next Generation cast and looking forward to what might be on the horizon for the newest captain of the Enterprise G. 
The final segment of the show was devoted to interviewing composers Stephen Barton and Friedrich Weidman on creating the musical score for this season of Picard that incorporates so much inspiration from throughout the Star Trek musical history. Okay, so we have news of a Section 31 film. According to comicbook.com, there's more Star Trek on the way in the form of a Star Trek Section 31 movie. Recently, Paramount announced that it has given the green light for a movie starring Academy Award winner Michelle Yeoh, who will reprise her role as Emperor Philippa Giorgio from Star Trek Discovery. According to the press release in in Star Trek Section 31, Emperor Philippa Giorgio joins a secret division of Starfleet tasked with protecting the United Federation of Planets and faces the sins of her past. CBS Studios is producing Star Trek Section 31 with production beginning later in 2023. Yo said in a statement, I'm beyond thrilled to return to my Star Trek family and to the role I've loved for so long, Yo said in a statement. Section 31 has been near and dear to my heart since I began the journey of, of playing Philippa all the way back when this new golden age of Star Trek launched. To see her finally get her moment is a dream come true in a year that's shown me the incredible power of never giving up on your dreams. We can't wait to share what's in store for you. And until then, live long and prosper unless Emperor Jojo decrees otherwise. (laughs) David Staff, president of CBS Studios, commented, For years, we've been looking forward to Michelle Yeoh one day returning to Star Trek. That's for years. She just did the season like less than a year ago. Well, anyway. More than one year. Okay. Well, anyway, her powerful performance as Captain and Emperor Giorgio was a pivotal moment for the return of the franchise, and her portrayal resonated with fans around the world in a multitude of ways. We couldn't be prouder to join forces with Michelle once again as we continue to explore the Star Trek universe, celebrate its legacy, and chart a course for the future of the franchise. Craig Sweeney is writing the screenplay for Star Trek Section 31 to be directed by Alatunde Asuzami. The film's team of executive producers include Kurtzman, Osusnami, Sweeney, Aaron Bears, Frank Siracusa, John Weber, Rod Rodberry, really? Okay, Trevor Roth, and Yo. It will it will be produced by CBS Studios in association with Secret Hideout and Roddenberry Entertainment. Okay. Well, and our our final um, bit of news is the first season of, about the first season of Strange New Worlds. It's going to Pluto TV. Oh. Pluto TV, Paramount's free ad-supported streaming service, is adding more Star Trek content, now expanding its to include full seasons of original Paramount Plus programming in the USA. 
Paramount Global is leveraging the power of its popular free streaming service with a new initiative of offering full seasons of original programming before new seasons are released on Paramount+. Plus. According to Deadline.com, this will include the first season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which should start streaming for free on Pluto TV in May, one month ahead of the June 15th debut of Season 2 on Paramount+. Plus. Episodes of Strange New Worlds will likely rotate through on one of the two dedicated Star Trek tra- channels. If Paramount continues with its corporate synergy, we could expect the most recent seasons of Lower Decks, Prodigy, and Discovery to also show up on Pluto TV ahead of the release of their upcoming new seasons on Paramount+. It looks like Pluto TV has already started this initiative as the second season of Star Trek Picard recently began streaming on Pluto TV's Star Trek channel. And all 10 episodes of season two are currently available on demand, which is also available for free with ads. Mm. So in closing, we'll be taking a break until Monday, June 12th, when we will provide our preview of the second season of Strange New Worlds. We'll look forward to you returning to our podcast at that time. As a reminder, this podcast has been around since September 2017. Our full catalog of episodes include analysis of every episode of Star Trek, Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, and Strange New Worlds, as well as reviews of the short treks and several special topic shows. We appreciate those of you who have shared a link to Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a comment over on iTunes for us. It can help us out with attracting the attention of new listeners. But until that time, like to subscribe and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD, Facebook at Facebook.com Star Trek AOD, and our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the shows. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.